I don't really watch TV, and I'm not into sports, uh, if you couldn't tell. Um, so if I ever ended up at a Super Bowl party, uh, I would be there because people I love are there, and they've probably brought food. Um, not that you can really tell from looking at me, but I love food. I love it. Um, my father, who will be listening to this podcast, so hi, Dad. Um, he has an incredible sweet tooth that I inherited uh, from him, that he inherited from his dad, and probably so on and so forth. Um, like when I grew up, it was chocolate chip waffles in the morning and ice cream at night. You know, life was awesome. Um, and it's not just sweet stuff I love. You know, if I'm in the middle of, say, I'm down at Lee's enjoying their, you know, Thai peanut sauce tofu or a nice thick marinated steak, whatever it is. If I'm in the middle of that, you could probably just yank the table out from under me and I wouldn't notice until I'm done chewing. I love it. Um, there's a lot of things that I love about my wife. Uh, but one of them is definitely her cooking. Um, she's awesome at it, and I'm not, so she just does most of the cooking. I wash the dishes, it works out. Um, imagine, if you will, that it's almost dinner time in our apartment. So Meg lifts the lid off the crock pot, because of course we have one of those. And the aroma that fills the apartment is just proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Um, it's pork chops and rice. It's my grandmother's recipe. Perfectly spiced. Simmers for, simmered for about six hours until it's just fallen off the bone tender. And I'm, you know, my mouth is watering like Pavlov's dog, and Meg is looking forward to it too, smiling, ready to enjoy it. She's about to dish it up onto two plates, and instead, I walk over, and I just unplug the crock pot from the wall, pick it up, slam it down on my place at the table, rip off the top of the seven-quart slow cooker, and start stuffing my face with the serving fork. 30 minutes later, I look up at my wife and go, oh, right, did you? Okay, you can have what's left. If I ever did that, that's grounds for a dude to get slapped. And like, not just by my wife, like if that ever happened, I would want every woman in this church to just line up in a row and get a turn punching me because that's just bull. Um, it's just, it's really jacked up. Common decency says you don't accept a gift from somebody and then steal more of it. Uh, and you don't, uh, you don't just disrespect the one who created your part of the gift in the first place. Yet in research in this passage we're going to study tonight, I realized that that's actually something that we all do just about every day. We take what we want and then we give the creator the leftovers. I want to tell you a story about some men who did that and one who refused to. Um, before I do that, though, let's pray together. Father God, thanks for tonight. Thanks that we are here. Um, thank you for being here as well, um, because if not for you, none of this means a dang thing. Um, thank you for your scripture, for your truth, and for the love that we get to experience firsthand and learn about through studying these words of yours. Help us to, to be changed by the study, by learning about you. Make us in your image, God, instead of the other way around. Amen. So our story begins where Ben and Leonor's sermons left off in the book of 1 Samuel, specifically the life of Samuel, this young Jewish prophet. We're young at this point, of course. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, we're in 1 Samuel 2. We're going to start at verse 11, and if not, that will also be up on the screen here, courtesy of Will. Thanks. Verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Uh, last week, as Leonor covered, 
uh, Hannah dedicated her godsend of a child uh, back to God. Um, He was to live beside the tabernacle. This is the focal point of God's presence at this point in history. Uh, and to be raised by the priests to serve God while learning the Torah and the ways of the priesthood. Verse 12. Eli's sons were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burnt, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Well, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for people were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. For the majority of us who don't know the pre-Christ sacrificial system inside and out, uh, it's easy to look at, I'd say, most of this section and think, okay, well, what's the big deal here? In this kind of offering, a priest would take the animal that you brought, he would sacrifice it, and then he would burn the fat on the altar. That was God's portion. That came first. Uh, And then because God is awesome like that, he would basically let the priest and the offerer have the leftovers. Um, They would eat the rest as part of a sacrificial meal, this uh, act of thanksgiving to God. God allowed the priest to eat specific pieces of the meat, uh, uh, just the breast and the right thigh, which is God's way of providing for them and just letting them participate in the thanksgiving. But they weren't allowed any other part of it. What's happening here in this story is that instead of taking the parts God said they could have, they just stuck a big old fork in the pot, and whatever came up, they just said, that's mine. Uh, The closest modern parallel to this I could think of would be if you dropped your offering in one of the KFC buckets, And I immediately just strode over, covered my eyes, stuck my hand in, pulled out something, we'll say a 20, and then stuffed it in my pocket. Dude, that is not yours. Um, Even pretending for a moment the scum staff actually got paid out of the offering buckets, um, it's so far from okay for me to just take what I want and then give God the leftovers. Eli's sons were like pastors stealing from the congregation right in front of their faces. And then in verse 15, it gets worse as they get ready to beat people up in order to take the stuff that they're not allowed to have anyway. If you can believe it, though, the worst part of this whole thing uh, is in the first halves of verses 15 and 16, even before the fat was burned. Eli's sons weren't just stealing the offerer's portion, now they were stealing from God as well. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, then take whatever you want. I mean, listen to that. The offerers were willing to have their portion stolen as long as God got his portion first. They had their priorities straight. Hophni and Phinehas weren't just stealing a piece of meat. They were robbing people of their act of worship. And they were essentially saying, I come before God. This had some pretty profound ripple effects throughout Israel. To paraphrase verse 17 up there, their sin was huge because now other people were looking at God's offering like it didn't matter anymore. They had influence on their culture that they had no idea about, but it was there. This wasn't just about two men anymore. I mean, the the nation of Israel had, give or take, a million people at this point in history, I believe. How many of them do you really think didn't feel the impact of that sort of gross, self-serving violence at the very center of their religion? Not that this is a concept that's alien to us, unfortunately. We know the impact that corruption within religion can have, devastating the faith of 
millions now, billions even. Yet in this story, we find a counterexample. We see somebody who experiences this corruption every single day, yet is not broken by it, doesn't discard his faith just because of those people, nor does he slip into following their lead. This is in verse 18. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him while she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Yay! Hannah and Elkanah live happily ever after. Uh, plus, little Samuel had a little robe his mommy made, and isn't that adorable? Uh, not the point. Uh, it's nice to have some closure to the mom-and-pop part of the story, uh, but there's something I think is way more important than that that's hidden in this passage. Uh, and oddly enough, it's about Samuel's wardrobe. We're actually going to come back to that, but for now... Okay, back to the train wreck. Verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, oh, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Snap. Uh, stuff's getting even gnarlier, if possible. Um, Sleeping with the women on duty at the tabernacle? Like, this was an order of women who were devoted to service to the Lord, and here Hophni and Phinehas are seducing and corrupting them. This is some guesswork on my part, but odds are good that they use their position of power to pressure the women into sex. These are the sons of the high priest. And they're not even trying to hide it. In verse 23, Eli says, everybody's talking about this. It's another slap in the face of God, another way of saying, forget Yahweh. We do what we want. And the ripples of their sin are getting wider. Uh, an alternative translation of verse 24 up here is, um, the report which I hear is not good. They make the people of Yahweh to sin. Other people are falling away from God because of your influence. This is huge, and even Eli gets that. Uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed, as we've seen in Ben's sermon, I believe. Uh, but in verse 25, he still warns his sons, you know, um, you are sinning against God himself, and you're the mediator between God and men, who do you really think is going to stand in as a ref when he comes to judge you? Um, under the Old Covenant, that was the role of the priests, just serving as intermediaries there. But the priests, they were refusing to turn back from their ways. The end for them was certain. And that's what we see in verse 25, um, the second part of it, rather, where it says, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. This was initially a little troubling for me to read because it, uh, it seems to support that schizophrenic view of God that a lot of us have, you know, the, the one that says, well, the God of the Old Testament, because, you know, that's clearly a different God somehow, well, he was all about vengeance and smiting and fire. And, but then you get to the New Testament, and that God's just love and fluff and puppy dogs and unicorns, and everything is just wonderful, and he never judges anyone. Totally different guy. Not so much. Um, the sons of Eli are like the Pharaoh of Egypt in Exodus. Um, at some points in Exodus, the text reads, 
God hardened his heart, and at others, Pharaoh hardened his heart. For a New Testament example, uh, we can look at Romans 1, which reads, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God wants good things for us, but he gave us free will, and Eli's sons used it to continually reject God's desire to turn things around for them. Samuel used his to stay on the right track in verse 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Well, there's some good news. Uh, And you'll notice this is a pretty similar verse to one in the New Testament describing Jesus. And he grew in favor with God and with men, wisdom and stature. This is, I feel comfortable saying this is a man after God's own heart. So, enjoy that brief intermission, and then we resume watching it all hit the fan. In verse 27, Now a man of God, this is an unnamed prophet whom God had just spoken to to deliver this message, came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor, that's Aaron, Moses' brother and the first high priest, out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you, and the word you here is plural, just so you know, he's not just talking to Eli, but also Eli and the ones that he is head over. Why do you honor, sorry, why do you scorn my sacrifice and the offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Um, we're going to stop abruptly here because that's what happened when I read this the first time and went, wait, um, did God just break his promise? Because it looks like he just broke his promise. And if that happens, that's the first time, and we need to know why. Uh, and I did a lot of digging uh, on that to figure out what's going on. And the much shorter answer No! Um, If you want details on that, uh, you can look up uh, Exodus 29 and Numbers 25, in which God promised that the priesthood would belong to Aaron's descendants. That's all. God didn't say, you know, here's the roadmap of specific descendants of yours who will hold this. He just said, Aaron, you will always have a descendant who's doing this. God says essentially in verse 30, Look, Eli, you and yours have brought disgrace on my house, so I'm selecting a different set of Aaron's descendants to carry on the priesthood. Wiser ones who value what is truly valuable. Let's go to verse 31. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling, a part of which will be the loss of the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 4 of this book. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Ouch. Um, Quick aside there. I did some digging on this because I'm like, God, why are you so harsh? I mean, he he has the ability and the right to, but nonetheless, I looked at it in Hebrew, and the original text of it is not nearly as harsh. Uh, it reads a lot more like, yet I will not cut off every one of yours from my altar to consume your eyes and grieve your soul. In other words, your punishment's not going to be so totally devastating that there won't be any consolation left for you. 
Because your descendants, even though there, there won't be many of them, and they will not hold the highest rank, I'll still allow them to minister in a priestly capacity for at least as long as you are alive. Verse 34. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. Um, spoiler alert, uh, this happens in two chapters, uh, when both Hophni and Phinehas are killed in the same battle with the Philistines. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one, always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Change is coming. God has not been asleep. He's seeing what happens to his house, the way Eli and his sons are disgracing it. And he's acting to create reform, to bring back some purity in that. Something that he's going to use Samuel to do uh, as he grows up, grows older. Uh, one quick note on verse 35. Um, this is a prophecy that, like a lot of God's prophecies, has something we call multiple fulfillment. That means that it's fulfilled partially soonish and then more completely later on. Uh, the more complete fulfillment, that's usually, not always, but frequently about Jesus. Uh, that is actually the case here. Uh, Jesus is our faithful high priest. Yet the, the partial fulfillment of it uh, was just done throughout the lifetime of David, where the line of Eli was slowly whittled down and then replaced by a high priest remarkably named Zadok. Good names back in the day. And uh, then transitioning uh, the high priesthood back to him. He's another descendant of Aaron, by the way, thus fulfilling his promise still. Um, that's not at all the main point of the sermon, but I'm not going to skip over a prophecy about Christ, so there it is. The main point of the sermon is really more like a main question. Um, we've got two parties here, the sons of Eli and the son of Hannah and Elkanah. The writer of this book juxtaposes them pretty sharply, and he's doing it on purpose. Hophni and Phinehas are a spectacular moral train wreck. Meanwhile, Samuel is in training and growing up to be one of the great heroes of the faith. They both grew up in the same center of Yahweh worship, under the same high priest supervision, doing related work within the priestly ministry. So the question is this, what is it that makes one of these parties spiral downward into ever-increasing corruption and abuse, while the other one grows into ever greater integrity and faithfulness instead? To demonstrate the answer, uh, I want to tell you another story about me, uh, except unlike the dinner table one, this one actually happened. Um, doesn't make me sound much better than the other one, but still worth telling. It's a story of a large chunk of my life when I was just another son of Eli. Picture boy, 18, pastor's kid, grew up in churches his entire life, called himself a Christian, you know, got saved, prayed the prayer, whatever you want to call it, at uh, first grade or so. You know, prayed before bed, knew decent chunks of the Bible. Lived in a dorm room in college, surrounded by literally dozens of committed Christian friends of mine who were all part of the same campus ministry, um, where we would all get together on Thursday nights and go worship God uh, in this loft over at Jimmy John's on Green Street. We had the same circumstances, all of us, me and my brothers and sisters in that ministry. Um, and with very few exceptions, all of them were making awesome high-integrity decisions, putting God first all the time. Problem was, uh, kind of like Hophni and Phinehas, I had all the outward signs of being a good disciple of the Most High God, but that isn't what makes the difference. 
something else was informing all of my decisions, uh, even the ones, especially the ones that I was not aware I was making at the time. Decisions like keeping, keeping up a double life, uh, like lying to my family and friends pretty systematically about who I was and what I was up to, holding on to things like anger, hate, and crossing a lot of lines that should not have been crossed with my girlfriend at the time. And then after all of that, still pretending that I was putting God first. I remember one time that uh, that girlfriend, who was one of the main things that I lied about so much, came to visit on campus for a day or few. And I was so excited about getting to show her this basically church of mine, the worship service. It was that night. But without ever making any conscious decision, that evening came and went, and I never showed up. I was too busy making bad decisions, just satisfying my hunger instead of putting what God wanted first. That was what made the difference about who I was, what makes a difference for all of us in many ways. I gave God the leftovers. I always did this, uh, realizing it or not. I told the truth when it was convenient for me. I prayed when I wanted something. Uh, when I read the Bible, it was because there was nothing good on TV. Uh, and I kept every, every last penny of the tiny paychecks that I made as a student, just saying, well, hey, I'm, I'm a starving college student. I need all of this. And besides, if I ever get just more money than I know what to do with, just drops out of the sky, maybe I'll give God some of that. I spent the first parts of my time, my money, my focus, just all the resources I had on me. God got what was left. It didn't take long for my life to self-destruct uh, temporarily, fortunately, but my point isn't so much the, the possibility of some big catastrophe like happened in small measure to me and in large part to Eli and his family. The sudden you know, fade to black ending, that, that doesn't scare me, honestly, as much as the here and now fade to gray. I watched it happen once already, that sort of slow motion train wreck of a life where everything is just narrowed down to tunnel vision, only looking at yourself. But the gifts of God, like cherishing other people, devoting yourself to a life that's bigger than just you, being steady, you know, having your foot upon some rock that's not going to move not being blown about by every new whim or feeling that comes to you. These gifts, they all faded into the periphery, even though they're like a beautiful flower bed in the springtime. Gorgeous and most beautiful when you lose yourself staring into that. Putting yourself first, that's more like staring at the sun. You, know, you become blind to the vibrant beauty of our Creator God and the gifts of His that, like an engagement ring, give you the most joy when you give them away. Look at your life, how you parcel out your time, how you organize your week and what you organize it around, how you spend the money and the other resources that God has given for you to use, how you make your decisions based either more on what you think God would want or what would produce the most good in the world or just on what you feel like at the time, what you're Hungry for, in other words. When I look at my life like that, as honestly as I can, it, it's pretty obvious that I used to be Hoffney and Penthouse. Which character in this story are you at this point in your life? Which character do you want to be? The last verse of the book of Judges, which chronologically comes just before this one, um, says that in Israel, everyone did as they saw fit. 
Thus, if it felt good, do it. You know, if it works for you, then it must be true for you. Not that that sounds in any way like modern or postmodern America. Everyone did as they saw fit means valuing our own comfort and convenience as the first priority and, uh, and giving God the leftovers if we can, you know, squeeze that in. I doubt I have to make it any more obvious that the culture of the house of Eli is the culture that you and I see every single day. When we walk, about, walk out of our front door, when we turn on the TV, read the news, when we're just talking with people we know down at the club, at our job, at our classes, at the show. It's the culture that starts the minute that we walk out of our front doors, if we're intentional enough to keep it outside of our home. And look, we all know we live in a culture of ridiculous narcissism. I'm not going to belabor that point tonight because that's a different sermon, and I actually already preached that one. <laughs> no need to double that up. Just hear me when I say that the wreckage of a life that Eli's sons created for themselves, the choices that they made that murdered something beautiful and good inside of them and snuffed out that same light in thousands of others, likely, if we let our culture have its way with us, that sort of wreckage is not far from us today. Don't let it happen to you. Samuel didn't, which I guess begs the question of how. How did he preserve that bit of goodness inside of him against tendencies of self-worship that creep in insidiously, slowly, like the, the old frog boiled in water who doesn't get out jumping to safety because it's such a slow change? In the early chapter of his life that we're studying now, before Samuel becomes the national religious reformer that he will be, he has exactly zero lines of dialogue, but there are still lessons to be learned from the story, and we're going to put some of those up on the screen. First one, never accept the new normal. Yeah, times change. I get this. Technology changes. Uh, ways of expressing what we value changes. You take uh, dressing up in your Sunday best as one example. Uh, before the, no, as of 1840 or so, until pretty recently, I guess, till even now, depending on who you ask, dressing up in your Sunday best was put forth as a way to honor God, by an expression of reverence toward him. And people did that, and God was honored, and that's awesome. Then again, up until 1800 or so, and increasingly today, you know, people are looking at it a different way, like John Wesley did when he said, let your dress be cheap as well as plain, end quote, as a way to honor God. Um, more using your lack of attention at what you're wearing as a way of saying, God, I care more about you than putting on the outward appearance, which is typically more the way scum folk do it. The point is, expressions of what we uphold can change, but, you know, that's fine. But never let somebody else or just world culture in general tell you how to think or what is valuable. Remember that every decision you don't intentionally make gets made for you. I mean, heck, most of our decisions don't even seem to be about, you know, values and priorities. I'm betting when Hophni and Phinehas violated the sacrificial laws like that, they probably weren't really thinking of that so much as just thinking, I'm in the mood for a different cut of meat today. And why? Because that was the culture of apathy around them, and they just accepted it unquestioningly. For Samuel not to lose his solid ground, his connection to God, he had to go into every interaction aware, never taking for granted that what he sees or hears or thinks is just true or good just because it's normal. We know from elsewhere in 1 Samuel that this guy knows the scriptures well enough and he values them highly enough 
to carry him around in his head like a, like a compass or like a lens through which he can see the hidden value choices built into every little decision we make, the ordinary everyday stuff, and then make the best decision or the right decision. Samuel wasn't gullible enough to accept that what he saw around him as normal or okay was, just because everyone around him was calling it that. This is a man who wouldn't be tossed about so easily, one who he stood for something, and he wouldn't be dissuaded from it so easily, which is, by the way, a definition of faithfulness. Samuel knew what, what was to be prioritized and upheld, and he knew that that doesn't change with the times. So take that concept and run with it in everything you see, but here's just a few examples where, you know, perhaps are good starting points for you. How about how you use your time, which is a decision? I know a lot of people fill an enormous amount of their free time with watching TV or just zoning out to your favorite music, and there's nothing inherently wrong with doing either of those things, especially in moderation. But, you know, it's normal in our culture, so we don't think about it. Hidden inside that decision, though, to fill a ton of your free time up with this, there's a value choice. There's a choice saying, when I choose to first fill all my free time with entertainment, aren't I really saying that keeping myself entertained and comfortable is more important than, say, spending my time loving other people, or working on my relationship with God, or developing these gifts and skills that God has put in me so that I can create good in this world? When I do the normal thing with this, am I giving God the main dish of my time or just the scraps? Or take how we use our money. Uh, our head pastor, Mike, was right when he preached that one of the best barometers for what a person values is how they use resources like money. It's considered normal in America today to you know, pay your bills and then spend some money on you, just have some fun. And when you've done pretty much everything you need or want to do, if you have some left over, then give it away to some church or charity or cause. That's just normal. But isn't it a value choice when we do the normal thing and say, well, I don't have any extra to give this month, sorry. Aren't we implicitly saying that God is only entitled to our extra, to our leftovers? And let's not forget how we do this with our theology, with our view of God. Verse 13 in our passage tonight says of the, the backward way the sons of Eli were running the sacrificial meal that, quote, it was the practice of the priests to do this. It had become normal to disrespect God and bend these laws just to satisfy their hungers in the moment. And how do you suppose this happened? Probably the same way most bad theology happens. Instead of starting with God's truth and living our lives to match, people just lived their lives however they wanted and then recreated a God that matched that, that was compatible with the way we live. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I, I can't believe in a God that would allow anybody to go to hell. Or, I believe in God, but I don't believe it's wrong to sleep with somebody if you love them. Or, I believe in God, but he's only loving. He, he wouldn't judge people. Every one of those statements starts out with what is comfortable and then makes a God in that image, one who doesn't dismay us by disapproving of us in any way or requiring us to change. As is very frequently the case, C.S. Lewis put it quite well when he said, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. In religion, as in everything else, 
Comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you won't get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with. And in the end, despair. Don't let a world that we know has its priorities all jacked up be your litmus test for what is true or right, or worth upholding in your life. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed from it. One way to do that is our second point. Saturate yourself with God's culture. I already mentioned the way that Samuel put a pretty high priority on worshiping God with all of his mind, knowing the scriptures and prizing them like diamonds, but it didn't just stop with the mind. Uh, the ancient Israelites were a really highly expressive, sensory people. When grieving, they would shave their heads and put on literal sackcloth and ashes. When rejoicing, they would dance like David or burst forth in song like Hannah in Leonor's sermon, you know, rocking this prophetic slam poem for God and everyone around them to hear with their ears and see with their eyes. Remember what I said about Samuel's clothing being important? The ephod was the uniform for Levites and priests in the service of God and that little robe that his mom made him every year. The robe in question, this was another symbol of the priesthood. Both of these were visual and tactile symbols that he could see every day and remind him, regardless of what you see around you, this is who you are. Symbols that he could physically put on every morning, choosing in to valuing God's ways over the world's alternatives. If you're uh, sort of a sensory or visual person like I am, you know, considering using, consider using symbols like this yourself. Uh, some people like to wear a cross around their neck, and the weight of it there is enough to remind them, all right, this is who I am. This is a set of things that I need to prioritize and value. For me, I used to do that, but it was a little too easy to forget about. So I'm working on another plan sort of running with what God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6 when he said to wear his words as a sign on your doorposts, your foreheads, on your hands. I'm planning to do that last part more literally than most these days. And uh, getting the Greek for agape tattooed right about here on the top side of my right wrist. This is a good place for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of which is, <laughs> if I need to, I can cover it up with a watch. Uh, and secondly, because I'm right-handed. That way, whenever I use my dominant hand for absolutely anything, I'm going to see another reminder saying, no matter what you see around you, this is who you are. Are the things you're seeing or hearing or even thinking actually grounded in Christ in the way of agape or just doing what the self-worshipping culture around you says? An anchor to sort of pull me back to that. Got our last point, number three. Recognize your role in creating culture. This is a lesson that Samuel teaches us only pretty passively in this early passage, what with him being, you know, three to ten at the time. Though the Eli and his sons are doing it actively and in very much the wrong direction. Their acts of self-gratification did more than just affect the condition of their hearts. It also just pushed the nation of Israel as a whole a little farther down the hill away from God. There is nothing that we do only to ourselves. Nothing. As your dentist will tell you, if he has to put in another filling, bacteria in your mouth, it, can, it uh, consumes sugar and excretes acid. 
your car if you have one. The engine in that consumes foreign oil and produces motion. As for you and I, we both consume and produce culture. We can't not do it, because every act of communication we do is either contributing to and building up an aspect of local culture or tearing it down, replacing it. You remember uh, Mike's story about when he worked in the steel mill and he got made fun of all the time for uh, not slacking at the job, just making other people look bad. His act of not doing something, it still de defied the, the new normal enough to get pushback. People couldn't ignore it, and that's not doing something. Imagine the impact actually doing something abnormal, on purpose and intentionally and consistently, can have. Even things that we think of as little, they send out big ripples. Think about, for example, how our culture views other people, casual acquaintances, those that we bump into throughout the day. I think really, if we're honest about it, the culture we're around and that we sometimes buy into says, if it's not about me, I'm not all that interested. So how you doing? Okay, two-word answer. That's what you got. And then you're cut off. So why don't instead you just ask how somebody's doing in a way that gets them to really share the deep stuff and then pay attention, submitting yourself and your time to that other person as a way of affirming, no, you actually do matter to me and to God. You're able to change the culture. You're able to challenge it. Another way would be talking openly about your faith, not just inside, but outside of the church, as if it was normal to do so. Because the more you do that, the more it becomes normal. You have the power to influence that. Do you know that? Normal is just a collection of individual actions. You're one of them. We're all paying attention to what other people are doing so that we know that we're, uh, know where we stand. So be the one who creates the norm of putting God first, ahead of our convenience, ahead of our self-focused world. See how people react. And, you know, the change may be gradual. It will probably be gradual. But you know what? People cannot not be affected by your stand. I asked you earlier what parts of yourself you saw in Samuel, Hophni, Phinehas, or Eli, who had influence he could have used to change things there, and didn't. Eli and his sons continually refused to turn back to putting God first, but the choice was always there. The choice is there for you guys, too. You can start it today, or you can renew it today. Questioning what you see put forth as normal, enthroning God as the standard, using reminders that you'll see often to bring you back to solid ground when you've started to drift, exercising the power that you have to build up or tear down what priorities are normal in your local community. We're going to take communion in just a minute. And if you're any variety of Christian, you are welcome to partake with us. Communion is, among other things, another symbol for remembrance, like Samuel's ephod and robes or my upcoming tattoo. Something that brings us back to our anchor, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King, over my life and over the life of anyone who calls himself a Christian. Family, let's put him first right now and always. Amen.